Suddenly there is music in the sound of your name Rosemary Rosemary was the melody locked inside me Till at last out it came Just imagine If we kissed What a crescendo Not to be missed As for the rest of my lifetime program Give me more of the same Wonderful music in the very sound of your name. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, April 24th, 2022. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes and Disagreements, will be released in September of 2022, and now you can pre-order it on Amazon. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So, uh, you know what today is? Barbara Streisand's birthday. <laughs> right. You know, you can't get it by Michael. I tried, I, I tried to trick him, thinking that it was the opening night of Funny Girl, but it's really Barbara Streisand's birthday, right? Right. It oh, and by the way, eighty years ago today. Yeah, go ahead. Eighty years ago. To, <laughs> yes, and on that note, if uh, and you would have time for this, uh, listeners, if you want to run over to uh, Feinstein's Fifty Four Below at nine thirty tonight. Steven Brinberg is doing his 80 Girls 80 show. <laughs> he's so good at it, too. He's honoring so honoring Barbara. And he's got some great guests. He's got Tova Feltshow. Oh, how nice. And Ramona Mallory, uh, who was uh, yeah. Anne in the last yeah. Yeah. Broadway production of Little Night Music. And... Uh, some two other great guests as well and it's good yeah obviously it'll be a very festive evening well the tova thing is really interesting because of course she was the original yentl and exactly. was brilliant beyond belief by the way um taken from somebody who saw her way back in 1976 phenomenal one of the great performances of all time mm-hmm. so uh so there should be a lot of interesting banter there yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> Not only is it Barbara Streisand's birthday, but of course, tonight is the opening of Funny Girl at the August Wilson. There mm-hmm. are only six uh, shows left in this uh, season quickly coming to an end. Funny Girl, The Skin of Our Teeth, A Strange Loop, Mr. Saturday Night, POTUS, and Macbeth. So mm-hmm. uh, we're coming down to the end of it, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a uh, 
a photo finish, as they say in the horse racing business, right? Yeah, it is. That's right. Good way of putting it. Yeah, sure. What kind of uh, horse races do we have in musical theater? <laughs> My fair <laughs> <Sure> lady. <laughs> yes, of course. And to a degree, guys and dolls, at least at the beginning of the show. I mean, mm. there's, you know, I mean, there's talk about that. There was a musical called Let It Ride, which was based on three men on a horse. Mm. Um, in fact, there was another one called Banjo Eyes back in the 40s. Uh, so uh, it was adapted twice as a musical. Uh, neither time terribly successfully, though Banjo Eyes um, really had much more to do with um, the star Eddie Cantor not being able to continue. I think he went to the army or something like that, or, or he got sick. I don't remember which, but anyway, great song from her called Not a Care in the World, which you can hear on the <laughs> revival cast album of Cabin in the Sky, uh, which they interpolated in there. But um, anyway, aren't you sorry you asked? <laughs> no, not at all. I, I sort of remember... Did, am, am, did I dream this, or did I actually see this, that there was an adapt- a musical adaptation of The Sting? Yeah, it's yeah. under the paper mill. Yeah, sure. Did sure. that have the horse race in the, in the musical version? I know it's in the movie. Well, not on stage. No, 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 not on stage. <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, they could have done the horse race like they did the car chase in... Um, right, right, right. In, uh, in, Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day, yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was nice. Or uh, actually in the music, man, the Wells Fargo wagon coming sure, in, which is sure. very, very funny. You know, One of the I only believe- things I remember. I believe way back in the early 1900s when Ben-Hur was done, I think they had real horses on yes, stage. Yes, on yeah, treadmills. Yeah, treadmills. They, they did, right? Okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. Did you see that there's that, uh, uh, is it the Ten Commandments or something coming to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though it got it? terrible reviews when it was in Florida, I, I, wasn't it? I saw it. I did saw you? it in Florida. It was ah, just the worst thing I've ever okay, seen in my entire wow, life. Wow, wow. I was just horrendous. Wow. I, and I was like, wow, they've really... Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, Greg Christensen adds the Ascot Cavat. Yeah, that's what Michael yeah. meant when he yeah, said, yeah. Uh, my fair lady. Yeah, yeah. sure. There are horses in um, in Camelot offstage. They're not sure. racing, but there's the Joust. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. Mame, you know, there's the yeah, horses with the, with the fox, fox hunt. hunt. Yeah, yeah. So. War horse. And then there's, War horse, uh, yeah. Uh, not, War horse uh, is really something. Who Who's the uh, Equus? <laughs> yeah, sure. Equus, yeah, <laughs> sure. Mm. All right. So uh, we have to get into our review section because we have a lot to talk about here. <laughs> uh, Peter and I got to see Suffs down at the public theater. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on this uh, new musical? Well, uh, this really uh, is the first musical that really seems to be tremendously influenced by uh, Hamilton. It looks a great deal like Hamilton. It feels like Hamilton. There's even a piece of music in it that sounds astonishingly to me like Hamilton. A few bars of music. Um, so, <sighs> Shayna Taub, uh, a very talented writer, and certainly um, has a, a big musical coming up um, in in the next year or so is uh, the person who's greatly responsible for this, needless to say, because she's the one who found the story of Alice Paul, who was quite, quite a woman and doesn't get enough credit, apparently, uh, considering what we're learning about she- um, Alice Paul. <laughs> she was uh, definitely a, a mover and shaker in the suffragette movement uh, and uh, would not take no for an answer. And would move heaven and earth and didn't care whatever the the uh, situation was she would definitely plow ahead no matter what the ob- uh, obstacle was so what you have here of course is the famous thing of uh, the best musicals have big characters big events and what's really interesting is you have another suffragette wonderfully played by jen colella 
a woman named Carrie Catt, who has been trying to get the suffragette movement happening, isn't making much progress. But the thing is, she's very cautious, while Shana Topps' character, Alice Paul, is very reckless. Now, what happens when essentially you have somebody who started out as reckless, who has now become conservative in the movement and sees what cannot happen because she's had the experience of seeing that things cannot happen um, against somebody who doesn't know that and believes that things can happen. It's almost like dream girls in a strange sort of way Hmm. where, (laughs) you know, you do have Curtis thinking that he can get his people booked in Miami while the other manager says, no, you can't. It's that type of conflict. And um, Jen Colella is really, really marvelous. Shana Taub, well, um, I think she's a better writer than performer. And um, I may get in trouble for saying this, but um, as strange as this may sound, she even looked like Lin-Manuel Miranda to me. So, uh, you know, how many times have we ever had situation where we say, you know who so-and-so looks like? The other person says, no, no. So if you go and you, don't agree with me i'm not going to be the least bit surprised because we all have different eyes where people look like uh, other people to us so um very effective music nice lyrics very fitting for the characters the only real problem for me with the show um has to do with the characterization of woodrow wilson now grace mclean i'm not blaming um I am blaming Shaman Taub for the way that um, it um, she conceived it. And I'm also blaming Lee Silverman, who otherwise directed wonderfully. But Woodrow Wilson is shown as a fool. He is um, shown as a song and dance man uh, who is made to look ridiculous at every turn. Now, obviously, uh, I will take it on historical fact that Woodrow Wilson was against women getting the vote. I will I will accept that. I don't know if that's true. The show wants us to believe that. And I'll I'll believe that that's accurate. But he wasn't a fool. He wasn't silly. He didn't say the wrong thing at every turn. Um, and again, as I always turn to 1776 in matters like this, mm-hmm. John Dickinson is not a fool as much as he hates the idea of American independence. He wants to stay loyal to England, but he always comes up with good reasons. Mr. Adams, you want us to trade in the Magna Carta uh, Hastings, uh, the Plantagenist for you, Mr. Adams, you say, yeah, he's right. Uh, Oh, sure, Mr. Adams, we have no army, we have no money, we have no friends, you think we can win this one? You say, hey, he's right. You know, so they don't make him look foolish. A lesser writer would have made him lisping, fat, effeminate, and you don't need that. And the idea of making Woodrow Wilson look silly is is a stupid move and an unfair move, I'm sure. Um, So that to me was the the um the weak link in the show and i would love to see that reconceived and make woodrow wilson a, a, a solid state he was the president of princeton before he was president in the united states he had to have some gravitas and there's none of it in this show and i wish there were i wish there were um, that other than that very entertaining done on a very simple set but a very right set um and um certainly a pleasure to sit through whenever Woodrow Wilson is on stage. So I do believe that this is going to move. Sean Logan, um, one of um, our trivia answers, uh, saw it 
long before I did and said, this is going to be the next big thing. I think he has a point. Um, I think it will be the next big thing, but there's no question that if you've seen Hamilton, and by this point, I imagine everybody has uh, who cares about musical theater somewhere around the country, uh, you're going to see the similarities. So we may see a number of Hamilton, you should pardon the expression, knockoffs. And um, this certainly counts as one. So I disagree with you about the Wilson thing. Um, Tell me why. I, I was really entertained by it. It was uh, a, a traumatic contrast between the seriousness of the women and um, and his character. And uh, I, if from a historical perspective, I, I couldn't really answer that. But I'm going to have to go with you on that, that absolutely he was a serious person and that mm-hmm. this didn't match up against him correctly. But uh, – I felt it was a, it was a good foil, and it created that uh, good triangle between the Jen Colella character Wilson and Shana Taub. Um I, I I kept on thinking to myself. I kept on looking it up and saying, "Where have I seen Shana before? Where have mm-hmm. I seen her?" And I guess she she was in uh, Great Comet, um, but I, I don't really remember her from Great Comet. Um, but I, I felt like I've seen her somewhere else before. I thought that she was really good, and I was. Uh, and I kept on uh, thinking to myself, um, it was interesting that, you know, just like Lynn, uh, you know, wrote wrote this show and put themselves in into the central character there. Uh, I thought that uh, Philippa Sue was very, very Oh, good. she was excellent. Yes, Philippa, I should have mentioned her. Yeah, excellent. Uh, uh, very nice presence, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Nikki mm-hmm. M. James, yeah, and very Nick, good. Nikki too. M. James, yeah. they have quite a cast. Cast is mm-hmm. really amazing. Yeah. Um, well, not having seen the, uh, the 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 show yet, um, it sounds to me like the Woodrow Wilson, uh, the model for that was clearly King George in Hamilton. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but King George in Hamilton. Again, you haven't been there, of course, but nevertheless, King George in Hamilton had a, a, a regal presence about him. I mean, he really believed that he was right. And uh, he, there was there was a seriousness in that bubblegum song. There really was. I see. And, yeah. And um, and there's none of that in here. I mean, th- they also make him very loose limbed, really a song and dance man is the way I'd put it. You know, yeah. I, and yeah. and, um, and almost vaudevillian in in its approach um there was there was this a strange type of um, this may not be the right word but i'll go for it anyway a strange type of serenity about um king george and in hamilton where he's just so cocky about it he there's still an elegance there's still a royalty about him you know which doesn't happen with this um as i say no gravitas um, so uh, that's to me was the problem, but of course, James, I'd much rather you have a good time than agree with me, <laughs> as my coffee mug says. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, uh, you know, to your point, Peter, is that, uh, and I'll kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. You know, Wilson doesn't have quite an on-point line as, as <laughs> like a King George does there. Uh-huh. You know. Um, I felt I was. Uh, I too have heard all the all the talk and buzz about Suffs and that it's going to move. It's going to be the next big thing, and so I guess I went in with very high expectations, and I was disappointed with the opening number. I felt that the opening number was uh, not as strong as I'd like an opening number to be. 
uh, but the show gets better and better. It does run 245, yeah. which I felt was a little bit long, but also it's all sunk through, so I don't feel like I got to a point where I was kind of looking at the wall saying, when is this going to wrap up? Um, so it does move, but if it, it was uh, it was quite a haul. Uh, Nikki M. James, just really amazing. I was hot and cold on the set. The, the set was... Um, Used very well at times, and at other times I felt like uh, re- you know pulled back and restricted everything. I guess it, it this is going to really depend on what what theater it ends up in uh, on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, that that's the uh, the the riser type of set that that's going on there might be good for certain houses where sight lines are a problem. That might really work out well. Well, um, you know, a good house for it would be the St. James, which I don't believe has a booking, mm. does it? I was just thinking that the other day when walking by it. I don't think so. Well, the thing is, the St. James um, has always had a problem, although it has expanded, but uh, with wing space or something like that. So this is a set that doesn't uh, require very much. I mean, it's there. Mm -hmm. It's it's one set. That's it. It's simply a courthouse steps. That's all it is, really. Mm -hmm. Um, The steps move a little um, now and then. But nevertheless, it's a it's a very solid looking stentorian set but um but um so uh, i i won't be surprised if we see it at the st james yeah we're going to go from these uh nested turntables into uh left right sliding platforms on on the different levels that i thought were very clever the way that they were used there um uh, the uh, one of the interesting things i hate to keep on making comparisons between hamilton and and this but uh hamilton you had very strong character musical themes whenever you heard a certain uh, uh, a certain few notes of music, you knew who was going to be on stage and what was going on, whereas the musical themes here for the characters are not varied enough uh, and but also you know this is the this is the world premiere this is the first time out, so they 're going to i think they have a really great property to work with here mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and i can 't wait to see it. Uh, the next time, so that- yeah, and God knows a worthy subject, you know, and uh, it's mm. wonderful when um, theater can educate us about somebody we ne- haven't necessarily heard of. Now, both of you may say, "Are you kidding? You've never heard about Alice Paul?" My God, you know, I mean, what can I say? I haven't, and so I was very glad to make her acquaintance. So, uh, Peter, did you know notice how many uh, actors were on stage? No, but quite a few weren't there. <laughs> There were 19 actors on stage, mm. and it was the 19th Amendment. Ah! <laughs> ah! <laughs> I love so, when things like that happen. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. And so that is Suffs Down at the Public uh, playing in the Newman. Uh, it's playing through May 29th. There are tickets here and there. You can get tickets on uh, on today's ticks. They've got the lottery there. Uh, a number of people I have seen are uh, repeatedly getting in that's that lottery. But So if you are in the New York City area, you can make it to the public uh, You know, later in your day if you uh, win the lottery. I would definitely try today ticks uh, to try to get into that lottery and see if you can see it. I, I don't think that there are many, if any, tickets for sale that are left because it's such a hot property right now. Speaking of that, I was astonished yesterday. I was, <clears throat> I was walking to a drama desk nominators meeting uh, and I was passing the winter garden early in the morning. I mean, early in the morning. And that line for tickets was mm-hmm. really around the block. I mean, all the way from the, where the box office is 
all the way down to 50th Street and curling around all the way to 7th Avenue. There were at least 100 people waiting in line, hoping for the best for the music man. So uh, so all that talk that we used to hear about the fact that, um, gee, they weren't really selling tickets. And were they papering? And I got sixth row uh, center uh, with no uh, problem. Um, maybe that's passed because, boy, people were certainly waiting and hoping for the best. Oh, Music Man is 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 uh, is the top of the grosses every week. It's three to four million dollars every week. Mm-hmm. I, I think that people that are getting uh, sixth row center tickets are getting house seats that are released. Uh, sure, uh, because there's a number of shall we say contracts there that hold those tic- <laughs> hold those tickets to the last minute. Yeah, right. Uh, and then they sell them at the box office, knowing mm-hmm. that they've got such a, a huge uh, demand for tickets. I want to tell you about a show I think that you'll enjoy. Play on Podcasts. Epic audio adventures that reimagine Shakespeare's timeless tales, featuring original music composition and the voices of award-winning actors. Each episode explores plays from Macbeth to A Midsummer Night's Dream in a way that you can actually understand it and create it specifically for the podcast form by some of America's most exciting playwrights, directors, and composers, and performed by Stage and Screen's best. Check out their current season of King Lear that stars Emmy winner Keith David and Severed star Tramel Tillman. Hear Shakespeare like you've never heard it before. Subscribe to Play On Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. So, uh, next up, uh, Michael, you got over to second stage to see two of my girls. Uh, so why don't you give us your take on this? Yes, I will. But now I f- forget, uh, Peter, did you say, had you discussed it already? Um, I believe I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you made the boys in the band comparison mm-hmm. and I guess that's a, you know, uh, a, a an obvious one, but, but, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, what else can you do? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah uh, it's uh, about this, this group of gay guys, younger gay guys who in this case uh, they're renting a vacation place in Palm Springs and they're a very diverse group. And it's about all the drama that happens uh, among them once they get there. Um, uh, here's an interesting thing. I, I have never been to Palm Springs, but I have a conception of it. And I guess my conception of it is that it was mostly older, rich white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and so I actually asked a friend of mine who, um, who, who frequents the place. And he, he basically confirmed that he said in recent years, um, younger uh, people have started to come there as snowbirds uh, mm. You know, in the winter mm-hmm. months from yeah. colder climes, uh, he said, but even them, as far as his perception, they're, they're mostly white. Uh, whereas I uh, while I was watching this play, I thought uh, it almost would have seemed like it made more sense if it took place on Fire Island. Hmm. Yes, because yes. That I know uh, the personal experience is a much more diverse uh, population. So I'm not sure uh, why. Uh, you know why the playwright shows Palm Springs, and maybe there is more of this uh, what he what he shows us than I realize or my friend realizes, and maybe you know my friend just doesn't run in those circles. But for what it's worth, that's just a little observation I made. I uh, enjoyed the play more than I feared I was going to. I, I had heard a few things about it, and I thought it might be 
preachy, uh, but it it really wasn't. I I thought there were a lot of laughs in it. I did think that everyone in it is hyper articulate, uh, <laughs> which is not terribly realistic. And I you know I didn't I don't think I made that point about take me out. Uh, when we talked about it this time, I, I, I the, when I originally saw "Take Me Out," I very much remember making that point uh, on the original production. That you know, I mean, certainly there can be, uh, you know, any individual baseball player uh, can be very articulate and a, a road scholar type, uh, but just to have so many of them being able to speak so eloquently and with such advanced vocabularies uh, seemed like really, really heightened reality to me. And that's the uh, case here with To My Girls. I mean, none of these people are supposed to be college professors or anything like that. Um, anyway, uh, they just ha have these interactions with each other and they, uh, you know, there's a lot of laughs, but there's a lot of microaggressions and confrontations over various things. And uh, the cast is excellent, I would say. It was nice to see Brian Batt um, mm. back on stage. And uh, he, uh, maybe this is a mild spoiler. Uh, he's the guy who rents the, the place to these young guys. And, you know, at first he seems nice enough and uh, he's on in the beginning and then he goes away for a while and then comes back. But anyway, it turns out um, it gradually revealed that he's a Trumper. And obviously the, <laughs> the young uh, people of color uh, and even the young white guy don't react very well to that. And so there's drama involved in that. Uh, I thought I really was with the um, the play until the end. And then I thought it almost fell apart uh, way into the action. Uh, a character we've never seen before shows up. Um, and there's this really strange plot point uh, that I won't give away, but it just strains, strains credibility to the breaking point and he comes on and there's all this stuff that suddenly this new issue plus he starts talking about another character that we've never seen and never will see and i don't know what the playwright was thinking oh and then also um two of the friends have a terrible falling out uh towards the very end of the play to the point where one of them says i i cannot be your friend anymore but then three minutes later, it seems like it's forgotten and they're all sort mm -hmm. of hugging and dancing. Mm -hmm. So I, I did not know what was going on there. I think it was overwritten. Uh, I do think this J.C. Lee is the, is the playwright's name, has a lot of talent, but uh, maybe could use the help of a dramaturg on the next outing, because uh, I think that would have helped this one. But it's directed by Stephen Brackett and it's at second stage and it was... Uh, um, about an hour and a half, no intermission and lots of laughs, as I said, and a very uh, talented and attractive cast. In addition to Brian Bat, Jay Armstrong, Johnson, Carmen Lascivita, <laughs> uh, Malik Pancholi, Noah J. Ricketts and Britton Smith. So, Peter, uh, To My Girls officially opened on Wednesday the 13th, so we would have had to have talked about it last week, and you didn't talk about it last week, so I, I didn't know if you wanted to throw anything additional in here. No, no, no. I no, think I, he, he did, yeah, because mm -hmm. he, he did. I remember the boys in the band yeah, comparison. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I think it might have been in passing. 
but we, we mm-hmm. I don't think we officially reviewed it anyway. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, so that's to my girls uh, at second stage. Uh, it is closing uh, this afternoon, uh, the twenty fourth of uh, April. So if you haven't seen it yet, it would be uh, tough for you to get over there. <laughs> uh, Peter, you got over to the Booth Theater where you saw uh, the revival of For Color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide Slash When the Rainbow When the Rainbow Is Enough. Uh, so tell us about this. Yes. Um, Nicosia Shandige's play um, has come back. It was at the public theater, but it's been tremendously recast. Uh, and I'm very glad uh, in one instance, because here we get Kanita M- um, Miller, who um, is a particular favorite of mine. I think she's a very, very gifted performer, but we've usually seen her in musicals. And uh, this is a chance for her to really shine. Now, she is playing the lady in red, um, which has nothing to do with Rudolph Valentino. Boy, that's an arcane reference. But anyway, um, the thing is that um, when the play was originally produced way back in 1976, this was the role that got um, Trezana Beverly a uh, Tony Award, not just a nomination now, an award. And uh, for good reason. She was terrific in it. But here we have Kanita Miller in this part, and I think she is her equal. Uh, and where does this award come from, given the fact that this is really um, a, an ensemble show? Because she has a monologue at the end that is so powerful that keeps the audience really so silent, waiting for every moment to know what's happening. And, well, there's quite a gasp at one point in that monologue. And Kanita Miller really does it extraordinarily. Kanita R. Miller, by the way, um, she does use her um, middle initial. But um, but really, this is the first time I've ever seen her in a dramatic role. Yes, I saw her do um, Seely in Color Purple. I saw her in um, Xanadu. Uh, she was in Come From Away for a while. I didn't see her there, but I did see her as Mama Ulele in the most recent uh, Once in this Island. So to see her in this um, play, wow, you know, and have a chance to really speak uh, for an extended period of time was really, really something. And um, I hope that she's remembered at awards time because, uh, but with what may very well happen is you may very well see that. Um, there's going to be an ensemble award for this company because they really work together so wonderfully. Uh, by the way, Miss um, Miller is tremendously pregnant at this moment in time to the point of which um, early in the show, uh, she disappears and uh, the other women, there's about five or six of them uh, are doing their thing. And I actually worried that maybe she was supposed to be on stage and had to get off because she was delivering the baby. I mean that Gosh. I'm not trying to be funny. Um, so, uh, but um, <laughs> so see her while you can, <laughs> because uh, uh, she may not be there much longer. But anyway, tremendous, tremendous work by the rest of the company. Amara Grandison, Tanyani Kumba, Okiwai Okipasili, Stacey Sargent, Alexandria Wales and Dee Wood playing various colors of the spectrum. It's, it's not quite the spectrum. You know, the spectrum, the Roy G. Beef thing, uh, mm-hmm. red, orange, yellow, et cetera. Yeah. Um, we have a lady in brown. Um, there's also um, one of the characters, um, signs. Uh, and we have American Sign Language, and it's really quite good. But, but this is all about the difficulties, of course, about being um, a young American black woman uh, or <laughs> and, and aging uh, as you age uh, uh, into um, not being a younger 
black woman, but an older one and the experiences they have that will really drive you crazy. And that's why they have considered suicide. And um, you do get the impression that a lot of these women really do believe that they might be better off if they weren't here anymore. So you, you really feel for these for these women. But I have to say that uh, given Kenita R. Miller, that showpiece at the end of the, the uh, and it really is quite the dramatic 11 o'clock number, so to speak, uh, really makes uh, the show, it puts it over the finish line tremendously. So a very, very fine revival of a very necessary uh, work. You know, um, it was adapted into a movie that was very, very different. And I'm telling you, I found the movie so painful, I couldn't even finish it. There's a scene uh, with the Nikanani Rose dealing with a man. Um, and uh, that it was just too much for me. I had to stop. So um, this one is more palatable, and um, I'm very glad it is. It, there is pain in it, but nevertheless, um, I found it uh, bearable in the best sense of the word and arresting, and it had my attention throughout. So it's a very fine revival. Um, it's an open run, So, um, but get there before Kanita delivers. It is not an open run. No? It is uh, 20 mm-hmm. weeks only through August 14th. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, okay, thanks. Yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I, you know, it's, I didn't realize uh, that. Yeah, uh, I didn't realize that either. But then we have uh, something else coming into the booth right in back of it. Uh, so I don't know if that was the reason for the for the uh, uh-huh. limited limited run or what's going to happen there. But uh, but the press rep. Um, Reinforced a few times. It's uh, twenty weeks only. Strict, and it says on their website, strictly limited run. So I don't, I don't know mm. what they're doing there. But you know, it, it's funny how uh, you know. Remember that Newsies was ninety nine performances only. Right. Yeah. You know. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's yeah. funny how success can uh, yeah. change that yeah. strictly limited <laughs> yeah. run to. And it, uh, it ran ten times as long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, move over to a different um, revival. Uh, The three of us got over to Manhattan Theater Club, uh, the Friedman Theater, to see how I learned to drive. So, uh, Michael, you want to start us off with that? Sure. I really loved the play when I saw it 25 years ago. Wow, is that possible? (laughs) No. If you had asked me to guess about how long it was, I probably would have said maybe 15. That's what I would have said, too. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Wonderful, wonderful play by Paula Vogel about uh, a young woman who uh, started to be molested by her uncle at at a very young age, and that continued for years if you if you feel molestation is the correct term for it uh and it's really a excellent character study of of the two of them and and one of the salient features of it is that it uh does not paint the molester uncle peck as a monster uh there are scenes where he seems to have this young woman's best interest very much, you know, at heart, uh, despite what he's doing uh, to her. And in a way that makes him, I don't know if that makes him more sympathetic, less sympathetic, just just makes him more complicated, I guess. Um, 
This production is directed by Mark Brokaw, and it has the original two leads, Mary Louise Parker as Lil Bit and David Morse as Uncle Peck. Um, for whatever reason, I enjoyed this production far less than the original. Um, I'm not sure why. I, uh, I had forgotten that there are so many scenes with just those two characters and that they go on so long. Uh, I thought there could have been some trimming and I don't remember feeling that the first time around. So I don't know if it was pacing. I don't know if that was an issue. It didn't seem to me that it was slow paced. Um, It just seemed that some of those scenes were a little overwritten. And then also I I do hate to say this, but um, I think I liked Marilise Parker much better the first time because that was before I had seen her on stage and in film in so many other things in which she uses the exact same vocal cadences and inflections. Um, I, I, I do feel like she sounds the same, almost exactly the same in everything she does, whether it's Hedda Gobbler or, or How I Learned to Drive. And I personally don't like that i I guess some people um do like that and they they think it makes her distinctive and and that's what they want to see uh regardless of what she's in but i i find it a little annoying and uh that was the case here for me uh david morris on the other hand is a superb actor uh who i i very very much remember his performance from the original production and it was wonderful to see him again and the rest of the cast the rest of this cast is really stellar everyone is talking about joanna day who plays uh, a multiplicity of roles oh one one of the flaws of this play i would say is that it very pretentiously uh features what uh, paula vogel calls a female greek chorus a male greek chorus and a teenage greek chorus um each of them played by one person uh joanna day is the female greek chorus and her roles include peck's wife and Lil bit's mother uh the teenage greek chorus uh is played by Alyssa may gold and the male greek chorus is a fellow named chris myers but i you know i i i do think that sounds a little pretentious especially since as far as I'm concerned, these people don't act as a Greek chorus. Um, not really. Uh, they give like little transitional lines maybe here and there, but mostly they're just playing individual characters. And that's mm-hmm. not what a Greek ca- chorus is. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a little surprised at, at Paula Bobo for that. Um, but anyway, the, the actors are amazing. Joanna Day uh, is really great as both of those main characters that I mentioned, Peck's wife and Lil Bit's mother. And the others are, are, are excellent as well. Um, so I, uh, I would say very well worth seeing. If you uh, have less of a problem with Mary Louise Parker's sounding the same in every role she ever does, mm-hmm. um, then uh, you'll probably <laughs> enjoy it a lot more than me. <laughs> uh, Peter, what did you think? I thought it was a terrific revival. Um, and what, what amazed me is they didn't seem 25 years older to me. Uh, no. uh, that, that was the big surprise to me. Uh, I've seen David Morse uh, since he was just starting out in Boston with a, a now defunct company called Boston Rep, which was a really ambitious company way back when. Um, they were doing a lot of things here and there. And I, I don't know. I, it seemed like when I left town, they, 
they disappeared. You know, I guess I was keeping them alive, you know, buying tickets to them. <laughs> <laughs> they even imported Tommy Toon in one time to do a, mm. a show called Ichabod about Ichabod Crane. And um, I, I'll get back to how I learned to drive. I swear I will. But this is such an interesting story <laughs> that um, he came out uh, before a Sunday matinee and said, listen, the piano player isn't here. I'm going to do it a cappella. Hmm. And he started it and you could see in his eyes that he realized he made a terrible mistake. You know, doing it a cappella <clears throat> seems so bizarre. And uh, finally, the, the, about five minutes into it, in rushes the piano player with the music in his uh, arms saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And um, I later talked to Tommy Toon about it. And um, he told me that the piano player was out in Boston Common and fell asleep under a tree and uh, woke up uh, realizing that he was late. So so they started again, thank God, because doing it a cappella for an hour and a half, two hours, whatever it was, would have been terrible. How I learned to drive. OK, listen, um, I think it's, uh, it's a marvelous, marvelous play. And one of the reasons why is the fact that this is a case where this is not a bad man. He is a man who has something bad happened to him, but he's not a bad guy. And the reason we realize he's not a bad guy is what happens at the end of the play, because at the end of the play, there's a scene that shows that he's a sincere man. He's not just out to um, molest. He really loves this girl, whether or not he should is another story, whether or not how it ever happened is another story too. But, the last scene of the play, uh, penultimate, I guess I really should say, but that scene really shows that he's not just out to um, to uh, get sex. It's more than sex. Right. It really is. And that is the strength of the play that she's ve Paula Vogel is very fair to him and in indicating that even though he's sick on a certain level, yes, he's not a bad guy in the worst sense of what bad means and that to me is the strength of the play and that's what comes through here because up until that point you really do feel he's uh, just manipulating her the terrible thing that so many men have said to women along the way <clears throat> nothing will happen until you want it to that's one of the, the core lines of the play it said many times nothing's going to happen until you want it to is just another way of saying but you're going to make it happen, aren't you? You mm -hmm. are going to do it. You will do it at some point, won't you? And, you know, I'm patient, he says, you know, and that makes him seem like a good guy. To, he believes that he's really saying something good to her. Um, I'm patient. So, sure, the guy has flaws. Yes, the guy has a screw loose in it. But there is something about him that's totally sincere that shows up in that penultimate scene. And so that to me is the strength of the play. I very much liked uh, the production. I very much liked Joanna day. And um, I, I was glad to see it again. Yes, it is creepy. And we were having discussion. Um, a, a bunch of friends and I are having a discussion about it and they felt that um, it was a little too comic um, in one scene that the audience laughed and I thought it was a nervous laughter. And I thought it was, uh, we can't believe that this guy is going to this length. Mm. Um, and, um, I, I, I felt it was not directed for comedy. I just thought that that was the best way that the audience could accept what was going on. So, um, you may laugh too at this certain moment, but, um, I wasn't laughing. I was taking it very seriously and I don't think it was directed so that, um, to leaven it with laughter. I don't, I really feel that they were, um, it was a sincere production and I wish it well. And I wish we were running longer. This one, yes, does have a expiration date of May 29th and, um, that's not so far away. So, um, I hope it's a big hit and, um, I hope that, uh, it extends the audience 
was definitely laughing uh, in several places. But towards the end of the play, there is a line that Joanna Day delivers as Lil Bit's mother that absolutely made the entire audience gasp. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, I'm certainly not going to spoil it, but that is no. that mm-hmm. is something. And that's when you knew uh, for sure that this play had worked. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the show started, uh, the performance that I was at, uh, Chris Myers, who was the male Greek chorus, yes, uh, came out on stage. Did he do that for you guys? Yeah. yeah, yeah. When did you yeah. go, uh, James? Uh, sometime this week, it's all a blur. Uh, yes. uh, <laughs> sometime this week, uh, I guess Wednesday or something. I like went that. on Friday night, and he did. Uh, yes, he gave a curtain speech about he, about cell the cell phones. phones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we had two cell phones ring during our performance, oh, and you? somebody mm-hmm. t- two rows in front of me picked up their cell phone and had a conversation. conversation yeah. Incredible! It is unbelievable! Incredible! Unbelievable! But he had a very cute curtain speech. Uh, that he, he really he was like we we've had so many cell phones go off during the worst parts of this thing, mm. and they still did it. Mm. Anyway, um, so does Mary Louise Parker have a picture of Dorian Gray up in the attic somewhere? Yeah, I know, really. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean mm-hmm. she uh, she looks the she, same. She looks exactly the same. The same. Uh, she doesn't age at all. Mm. Uh, it's really amazing. I've long been a fan of David Morse. Uh, I I can't say that I discovered him on stage, but I discovered him on the television show House, um, and where he was very very menacing uh, on House. And uh, I've been a longtime fan of his uh, since House. Uh, I I sort of agree with Michael that I was like not uh, I was so looking forward to this revival, and I was a little bit underwhelmed. Um, and I'm not sure why that is. I'm not sure if it's that uh, I didn't know what to expect the first time and it was so overwhelming and shocking, the story and the way it was told. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's uh, it, James. Um, and so, and I knew what what was going to happen here, um, but I still felt like it, it's very it, – it's it, it brings up so many complicated feelings – uh, for me about this show. And, and I guess Peter put it the right way because David Morse is, is a monster who has problems that you can mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that he, uh, you know, and, and so it's not so straightforward. And, and Paula Vogel has talked on so many interviews about uh, the structure of the show and how that this is uh, not at all a black and white thing. And, and Michael, that, that line from the mother is just, mm-hmm. Oh boy. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, so, one little, one thing I noticed, and I don't know if either of you guys noticed this, but this is so interesting to me. There is that one scene where Peck is teaching, um, uh, fishing. Little, yeah. Fishing to a, a young a boy named BB, uh, like a cousin, a little bit's cousin, I guess. Yeah. And I distinctly remember in the original production that there was a strong implication that he was seducing him during that scene. Whereas in this one, I yeah. didn't get that at all. Uh-huh. Um, and I wonder why they decided to tone down that particular seduction moment when they certainly left in all of the ones with little bit. Hmm. That's uh, that's uh, interesting, yeah. Because uh, I didn't think about that until you just brought it up just right. now. But yeah, yeah it's uh, uh, who uh, who directed the original? Is it? Uh, it was it was him, wasn't it? Mark Brokaw. 
wasn't I don't sounds right. I forgot to look it up. Sorry. Yeah. So um as Peter mentioned, that is how I learned to drive is a limited run. It's only for another about a week or so. Uh, the 29th, which is no, no, five, May. It's May. Five days. Oh no, no, no six weeks. It's May. Mm-hmm. Oh, May. I'm all. It's all a blur. It's it's already it is, May. It it's already May for me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So we have five weeks or so left <laughs> of it, uh, or so. So you can get over to Manhattan Theater Club and and see that as well. So uh, next up. Uh, what are we going to go? We're going to go with another revival here um, where uh, Peter and I got over to Circle and Square Theater to see American Buffalo. Uh, so, Peter, tell us about this uh, revival. <laughs> this revival is causing me problems, and I'll tell you why. Mm. Uh, we uh, usually do the Theater World Awards at uh, Circle in the Square. Yeah. And uh, all that got, junk, <laughs> yeah, really. all that junk. Uh, when when this show opened in um, the, the 70s, Clive Barnes, then the critic for The New York Times, says this set has not been designed. It's been assembled. <laughs> and that's what's happened here. I mean, it is a junk store and they have used so much of the space uh, filled with this, that and the other thing. Movie posters, lava lamps. I mean, you, really, everything is in this junk shop and it takes up. I would say at least 80% of the stage. I mean, there has to be room for the actors to move about. And boy, do these actors move about. Yes, indeed, they do. So uh, uh, especially Sam Rockwell, uh, who uh, is uh, a ball of fire, as this character Teach always has been. So, uh, you know, you know what this play really is? This is David Mamet's version of the Three Stooges, um, <laughs> because these these three guys can't get it together. They can't do anything right. Um, everybody fl- uh, is is uh, really uh, problematic in every area that uh, they they really want to pull off this big job and nobody knows how to do it and they're depending on things even down to making a phone call to find out some information uh, <laughs> teach minds uh, up even screwing up a phone call a simple phone call he works so hard before he makes the phone call to make sure he's going to get it right and then he gets it wrong <laughs> and um, and of course the three students were also famous for violence you know, they would poke each other in the eyes and all the kind of stuff. But there, there were no ramifications for the violence. The violence was supposed to be funny and nobody seemed to be the worst for wear for it. That's not the case in American Buffalo. Not at all. So um, I think it's a very worthwhile revival. Um, there is a very interesting situation here um, with the non-traditional casting of Larry Fishburne, because indeed, um, late in the play, you're going to hear um, a very famous word uh, that people don't say anymore. But um, they do uh, certainly teach. Sam Rockwell says it here. And um, there is a moment that you would think that um, a black man would react to it. So we do have non-traditional casting. I guess he's not supposed to be a black man, because if indeed he were a black man, he would have taken issue with the word. Uh, any problem guessing that uh, the teach uses perhaps it would have been a good idea to drop the word but david mammon of course is very very protective of his work though um uh, (laughs) the funny thing is he does um have issues with uh revivals of this play because in the divorce settlement with um lindsey krauss was it that um he gave up his rights to this one Hmm. so he he doesn't make Hmm. a dime from this one but she does Hmm. um and um so he hates when this play gets revived i'm told i don't know if that he never said that to me but i mean i'm told that's the case um my god you know why can't you do um any of the others uh so uh so i think it's a very potent revival and it works very very well in this um setting though i will say i did notice 
I, uh, circle and square is not often a circle. It's usually um, a, a U-shaped configuration. And if you're at the top of each of the points of the U, think of it that way. I think you're going to have a problem seeing what's going on. Um, I was amazed that the people seem to be behind the set. I may be wrong. I wasn't sitting there. But anyway, be careful. Just as I said um, uh, 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 some time ago about Plaza Suite, don't sit on the extreme right-hand side. Make sure you're not at the top of that, either point at the top of the U. Try to get somewhere else if you're going to see because I think you're going to miss some things. And of course, any time you're in circle and square, you're going to miss things with people turning around. It's almost like the way summer stock used to be that you would miss something when people turned around. Uh, so that's going to happen in circle and square. But nevertheless, um, there's enough time when they're facing you that you're going to hear a lot of potent language, very potent language. That's what David Mammon is famous for. Um, so you'll hear every curse word in the book. And uh, you're going to hear it quite often. But these are disgusted. Um, teachers are very disgusted individual. Um, <clears throat> Bobby, played by Darren Chris, does a very fine job, though I do prefer the uh, performance by the young man uh, in the movie version. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, I think, is, is uh, terrific in the movie as well. So uh, it, but it's a worthwhile revival. Uh, <laughs> frankly, one of the stars of the show, though, is that set. It is. <laughs> uh and um we have uh who who is it got got covid is out this is out for a couple of days uh, oh is that right yeah uh i guess it's lawrence frischburn has has been out for a couple of days wow. got covid but i was thinking to myself that they are so on top of each other and so interactive that it'd be unbelievable if sam rockwell and darren chris didn't get covid also because <laughs> Sure. I mean, Lawrence mm -hmm. Fisher basically picks up Darren Chris at the yeah, end of the show, yeah, yeah. and he has a yeah. physical altercation with Sam Rockwell. Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, <laughs> that's the cast. Mm. That's the whole thing. So, Oh, there's uh, another thing. Um, I, I've heard that some people um, have been um, in the first row have actually been hit with objects that mm, have yeah. thrown up the mm -hmm. stage. Um, oh. So um, be aware of that, too. Yeah, the... Uh, um, uh, you were you were talking about the uh, the people at the top of the horseshoe. Uh, my wife and I were talking about that, uh, and and how about how terrible those seats must be. And oh, those are the him. those are steeply discounted uh, are seats. Okay. We look, we, oh, we kind of looked All into right. it. Oh, okay. And those are uh, very discounted. So, but uh, we had very very good seats. And with still a lot of the junk there blocked our view from seeing uh, so much of the stuff. So this might be one of the things where it's better to get the back higher seats at the circle and the square on the stadium seating rake than mm -hmm. it is to get in the first couple of rows where we were uh, because we we were blocked by hockey sticks and bird cages and <laughs> things like that. That's surprising. The only other show I can remember that being a huge issue at circle and the square was the miracle worker. Hmm. Do you remember? No. They had no, so I much scenery on stage and everyone was complaining and people were craning their necks to look around the furniture and that the production was not a hit. Uh, I think it closed early, if I recall. <laughs> so uh, I, it's interesting what you said about the rights issue with uh, American mm. Buffalo because uh, so many, uh, so many people sort of um, reviewed American Buffalo by saying, you know, David Mamet's a terrible person. And I was like, yeah, you, we, we know that, but how was the production? <laughs> mm -hmm, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's, uh, 
it, it, that's so that's so sad yeah. that 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 would happen like that yeah. but um yeah. but we uh, i was i was thinking to myself why why do this why do this play i don't, i don't think it really told us anything new this wasn't wasn't a new take on american american buffalo i don't you know i felt like uh i must say people have said that to me you know, Peter, you, you've seen other other productions of American Buffalo, including, uh, including the original. A, 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 a original and an Al Pacino mm-hmm. American Buffalo, and sure. and various other productions. What was this other than the opportunity to get these three actors I'm up on on a sure stage? That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. that's that's it. Yeah, just a mm-hmm. basic star vehicle money grab. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I don't know if you do. You guys know Casey Mink? She's a reviewer. No. Um, uh, she uh, reviews her backstage, and she's written for the Times and Variety and a handful of other other outlets. Uh, she's got this uh, this T shirt that says "More Vogel, Less Mammoth." Uh, <laughs> and uh-huh. I think that I think that that's a uh, a sign of um, what we will be seeing more of in the future. <laughs> so that's American Buffalo. It's uh, through July tenth, twenty twenty two, at the Circle and Square. We'll have a link to that in the show notes, and then uh, we'll talk about it briefly again when Michael gets a chance to see it. But Michael, you got on a yes. uh, bus or a train or a flight or some other way uh, magic carpet ride down to Washington D.C. to see the Merchant of Venice at the Shakespeare Theater Company. Tell us about this. Yes, I had missed it in Brooklyn because this is a co-production of the Shakespeare Theater and Theater for a New Audience. And it was here first, uh, but I completely missed it. So I realized I had another opportunity. And so I I bust on down uh, to D.C. because I really wanted to see it, if only for John Douglas Thompson as Shylock. And of course, he did not disappoint. It was a towering performance. Uh, but a uh, very good cast otherwise and very well directed uh very lean and mean production uh the the play as i think peter and others have mentioned um uh recently uh you know like so much of shakespeare is is very overstuffed uh and there's a lot of um extra stuff uh, in addition to the the parts that we really want to see and the parts that really grip us uh uh, and, and, and this production, I was struck particularly about how really everything that happens after the uh, trial scene is so drawn out and anticlimactic, in particular, a very long and, to my mind, extremely boring scene between Lorenzo and Jessica. Uh, and then after that, you know, fortunately, it ends on a, on a powerful note again, uh, as the knots are sort of untied but uh i I do think that the uh, director aaron arbus did a very good job of keeping everything moving and and very very tense and intense and it helped everyone and 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 all the other actors as well uh isabella araiza really really great as portia which is such a plum role um in this production the uh the apparent gay love between Bassanio and Antonio was very made very explicit in the direction and as played by Sanjit de Silva as Bassanio and Alfredo Narciso as Antonio. And, you know, we could get into that, but I'm not going to, I, I just don't even know exactly how um, that's supposed to fit in with 
what's happening with the rest of the play and the other relationships. It, it almost seems like um, from another play. Uh, and and the, But then aside from that, of course, in those days, uh, they've never really dealt with homosexuality in any overt manner. But here it gets as about as overt as it can. So I have always found that fascinating about Merchant of Venice. And, and of course, many other <laughs> scholars have as well. Um, then we had uh, Denia Esperanza as Jessica, and a very pleasant surprise for me was that this marvelous young actor named David Lee Huyn, uh, it's H-U-Y-N, was Lorenzo, and I had uh, seen him not that long ago in Mrs. Warren's Profession, uh, the Gingold theatrical company production here in the city. And I remember raving about him in that, uh, but I didn't even realize he was in this show until he walked on stage. So it was a very pleasant surprise to see him in it. And uh, I, I was glad I made the trip. It, it, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I uh, could have seen it in Brooklyn, but I didn't. And so I, uh, have a friend in DC and I thought this is a perfect opportunity to visit him and catch up with this production before it's gone forever. Uh, so I'm very glad that I went. All right. So uh, that's Merchant of Venice at the Shakespeare Theater Company, Washington, DC. And it is, uh, I guess, closing today, according to their website at the uh, Klein Theater in DC. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, next up, Peter and I got over to the Golden to see Hangman. So, Peter, tell us about Hangman. Well, <laughs> the real problem with Hangman um, may be with our ears um, because <laughs> we had a very – everybody's saying this, that um, it's very hard to understand what uh, people are saying. I truly missed Mark Addy. Um, I do believe David Threffall, um, who has replaced him, is very difficult to understand. and yet. And yet, as the play goes on, somehow, this happens a lot, you certainly adapt. Your ears adapt in a strange way. So if you get discouraged at the beginning, don't. I, I almost said, I'm not going to understand what they're saying. I, it's a good thing I saw this play at the Atlantic, or otherwise I wouldn't even know what they were talking about. But as time went on, I did. And um, my girlfriend, Linda, said the same thing. And James can verify this. He was sitting next to her. She did not walk out. <laughs> she did not. She, she stayed. stayed. You, you're my witness, right, James? Yes, that's right. My wife didn't come. <laughs> she, my wife did not walk out. She just didn't come. She didn't walk to it. Right. She yeah. didn't walk. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, I, I don't think this is Martin McDonough's best play uh, by any stretch of any imagination, but it is a fascinating premise that what happens when you're in a profession that um, and suddenly you're rendered obsolete. This is a gentleman who uh, did hang people for a living. That's what he did in Britain. But that, that's 1963. We see him doing it. And uh, but then two years later, hanging is outlawed as capital punishment. And so he's out of a job and he has to do something else entirely. And yet we'll see that uh, it's not easy to rid yourself of what you've been doing your entire life. Uh, you, uh, you may very well have the hankering to do it again. And um, that's what's going to uh, go on here. Well, the real story is that there, um, at the beginning, we see a scene 
where uh, a guy is protesting his innocence just as he's about to be hanged. And now you say to yourself, well, they all do that, don't they? Um, that's not so bizarre. But we are led to believe that they actually are hanging the wrong man as time goes on. And this is a story of somebody who wants to get caught. Um, the person who really did the crime essentially wants to get caught. So this is pretty fascinating for its own sake. But there are longers in the play where um, you really uh, are not really convinced of what's going on. You're not really interested in what's going on. It, it, this may very well be a one act play rather than a two act play. Mm. Um, but um, it, it, I do feel a lot of padding in it, which is why I feel it's not one of his best work. And I'm crazy for this playwright. Um, every time I read um, The Cripple of Inishman, I laugh like a seal. So uh, it um, that's my favorite of them all. I think it's really hilarious uh, in a very dark comic way. He's a very dark comic writer. And if you met him, he's the, the most sweet guy. I mean, <laughs> he really gets it all out in his writing. So um, so I liked it more at the Atlantic. And the other thing, I do believe that in the smaller space, just as I feel with how I learned to drive, by the way, in a smaller space, the play works better. You could understand people better. I don't think it's just a case of the fact that we have some um, substitute people here. Yeah, so many of the people that really got wonderful uh, reviews, and I'm talking about Maxwell Caulfield and Johnny Flynn specifically, are no longer there. They've, uh, I don't know if it was a case that uh, because of the uh, pandemic, remember this show actually did play a few performances uh, before it had to shut down um, two years ago. So, uh, but there's a strange, I don't want to quite say echo, but there's a fuzziness to the sound, even when you can't understand what's going on. And I didn't feel that remotely when I was at the Atlantic. So I don't think the Golden is a very good uh, fit for this show. And, you know, you'd say, well, gee, you know, the Golden's a small theater. I think there are only two Broadway theaters smaller than the Golden, um, the Helen Hayes and the Booth. But uh, there's not quite a reverberation. I don't quite know how to put it, but there is a, a problem with the sound, not just the accent. So um, I wish that that weren't the case, but it is, I believe, truly. But there are enough assets in, in this play and a very nice performance by... Um, the actress uh, who is playing uh, the daughter of the hangman. Um, it's a very nice mm -hmm. um, Broadway debut for Gaby French. And she was there um, off Broadway as well, but it's a very nice performance as the daughter, uh, very endearing and Tracy Bennett, um, unrecognizable. This is the woman who played um, yeah. Judy Garland mm -hmm. in End of the Rainbow, and I would have never known it, never known it at all. Um, it, it, totally different uh, performance. And uh, she uh, she really does a very, very nice job in a, in, a, in a role where she has to play a mother who really finds herself uh, very worried about a certain situation, and justifiably so. Uh, trying to hold it together, even though it's very hard for her to do so. So, um, so a lot of assets in Hangman, but a lot of padding. And uh, don't get discouraged if you have a tough time understanding him at first. I bet your ears will adjust. Just as you know, um, people were talking about Jessica Lang some years ago, not being able to hear her in um, that Tennessee Williams revival. Mm -hmm. And you know, and by the time 
the show continued, suddenly I was hearing her in a way that I wasn't hearing at the beginning. I, I think there's a phenomenon there. I wonder if there's a word for it that your ears adjust and you, you start understanding as time goes on. I don't know. But that seemed to be the case with that and this. Hmm. So, uh, Peter, at The Atlantic, did they do that opening scene the same way? Uh, um, it was a different set, if that's what you mean. Obviously, um, yeah. Um, no. I, I sort of had flashbacks to Sunset Boulevard there. <laughs> yes, indeed, uh, that occurred to me too. I remember uh, saying to Linda before it began, "Gee, I don't remember this set at all." And she yeah. said, "Didn't it take place at a bar?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah that sounds right to me." Well, anyway, the, uh, the, the there is, uh, and it's funny because the set you see at the beginning looks very substantial. It looks heavy. It looks like you're going to be there the yeah. whole night, you know. Um, but you're not. And that's that threw <laughs> me because I was like, "Did I? Am I?" I, I remember the bar. I, I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, the, yeah, I don't remember yeah. this at all. And it didn't look like that set could move, but they sure moved it. Yep. Oh, they, I, I remember that from the original production. Uh-huh. Oh, you do? Yeah. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they did? They lift it? No. No, I didn't lift it. That I don't recall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they uh, as. Uh, uh, Edgar Doby said at Sunset Boulevard, they, we lifted the whole mansion up and had the whole scene underneath it. And, and why not? <laughs> David Richards in his uh, one year as the Times critic uh, <laughs> reviewed Sunset Boulevard saying the mansion has landed. You know, so <laughs> it was really true. <laughs> that is great. I've never yeah. heard that. Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, Hangman, when I at the Atlantic, um, I really disliked it. I really, really disliked it. And 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 then I heard uh, you and Michael and other people that I respect um, talk about how wonderful it was. And I was like, I have to revisit this. And may, I don't. Maybe I was. I had an off day. Maybe they had an off day. I don't know what it was. But uh, I, I rather enjoyed it much more this time than I did at the Atlantic. And right. I, I'm thinking that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good for the marathon at the end of the season. At the end of the season, the, the marathon kills me. And I think that Hangman at the Atlantic must have been during one of those things where I had been seeing, you know, five, six shows a week, and I, I just don't have the stamina for that. So, I, re- I, I enjoyed it a lot here. Um, I did. I, I had a really big problem understanding them at the Atlantic, and, oh. uh, but. I think knowing the story coming out of the Atlantic going into this, it helped me bridge the gap and understand it a little bit better. So I didn't have the same issue that you had, although I was six feet to your right. So mm-hmm. maybe it was a little <laughs> bit different. <laughs> so uh, that's Hangman. It's playing a limited run through June 18th at the Golden. And uh, Michael will talk about that uh, when uh, after you see it. All right. Yes. So Peter and I also saw the minutes at Studio 54. So uh, Peter, tell us about this uh, Tracy Letts work. Another play that uh, had started out um, and uh, was in previews when the pandemic hit. And I remember running into producer Jeffrey Richards on the street um, sometime afterwards. And he says, I guarantee you, I guarantee you this play will see uh, a reopening. And, you know, I mean, that's that's easy to say. And um, but indeed, um, he he's good on his word, and here it is. So here we are in a mythical town called uh, <laughs> Big Cherry. Um, we get the impression it's down south, and we're at a, a, a meeting, um, a city council meeting, and um, we have a mayor 
um, and <laughs> not too subtly named Maya Superba, um, <laughs> played by Tracy Letts. Yes, indeed. You know, don't forget that he's not just a writer, but he's also an actor. And um, there he is. And you know, he's had uh, a sway here. And uh, what we're talking about here is there has been a troublemaker. Um, yes, Mr. Carp. Um the name we all know from a chorus line, but it's not the same guy at all. So Mr. Carp is strangely missing from uh, the proceedings. And we have to wonder why he's not there. Also wondering who's not there is Noah Reed, uh, his character named Mr. Peel, um, like Emma Peel. And um, Noah Reed in a Broadway debut that's very, very good, very good indeed, is... Um, is questioning. He's the newcomer in the group, and you always know that that happens. Here you have an established council, and here's the newcomer. He's missed the meeting where Mr. Carp disappeared um, because um, his his uh, one of his parents died, and um, you know he was otherwise um, busy with that, uh, understandably. But um, you really <clears throat> you really have um, uh, an established group here. Uh, certainly Austin Pendleton playing Mr. Oldfield. Again, not too subtle a name, is it? Um, who's been there since you get the impression 1904. So who else is there? Blair Brown's character, Ms. Innes, is there as well. And uh, she has a few um, tough questions. You also get the impression that... Um, Somebody is there who really shouldn't be there, and that's played by Sally Murphy, uh, who's kind of on the silly side as Ms. Matz. And um, nobody would go to the Matz for her, believe me. But um, and a real surprise is Jesse Mueller, uh, who we know from musicals, needless to say, very successfully starting with On a Clear Day. And certainly the success of Beautiful had a lot to do with Jesse Mueller because she was so endearing. You wanted her to succeed. And here she has in a minor role um, <clears throat> playing the uh, quotes, well, not quote, but stenographer, the person who takes down the minutes of the meeting. And um, it, I remember Laura Badanti saying to me at one point, I really want to do a play. And um, she wound up in Violet Hour for a very short period of time. I don't know what happened, but she didn't wind up doing it. Um, she started, but she didn't continue with it. I don't know what happened. But um, here we have Jesse Mueller, who m may be very well said the same thing. I want to do a play. And uh, she's certainly doing it. And she's very, very effective and unrecognizable um, in uh, because you, you don't expect to see her in a play. And it took me a, a couple of minutes before I said, wait a minute, that's Jesse Mueller. So um, <clears throat> I don't look at my playbills before a show starts. I, I want to discover as, uh, as time goes on. So <clears throat> what's the problem here that... Um, they don't want to read the minutes of the meeting where Mr. Carp had a lot to say, but we do have a flashback and we do understand what's going on. So um, it, <laughs> the critic for talking Broadway said that the end of the play <clears throat> had a WTF moment at the end. It's true. There's a very strange thing that happens at the end. It, you can interpret it in a number of ways and whichever way you interpret it, I think you have a case. Um, Linda and I had very different opinions of what it was, and each of us said, yeah, I can see that. So don't be surprised if you have one of those two opinions or three opinions or four opinions. <laughs> it is a little bizarre at the end. Um, but um, the point is made, whichever way you go, that um, tells us a lot about who these people are and what they believe and what they essentially want people to continue 
believing as time goes on. Uh, yes, I'm being inscrutable for a reason. I don't want to give too much away. I dare say you will not um, find uh, what you're expecting by the end of the play. I think it's a, a total surprise. Maybe unsatisfactory to you, but it will be surprising to you. But very well done. And also a terrific set. Really, um, a, a single set, yes. But David Zinn has really given us um, a, uh, um, a a council room in a, a grandiose uh, room. But you will notice there are some flaws in the room. Look carefully, and you will see some uh, some stains here and there that indicate um, as a metaphor for the fact that uh, these people are stained in a certain way too. So. Um, maybe not totally satisfying, but, um, certainly an arresting play and worth seeing and worth discussing. So the minutes is 90 minutes, uh, no intermission mm -hmm. and 89 of those minutes I loved. Uh -huh. so, Aha. <laughs> I'm guessing the last minute is the problem. <laughs> the last minute, the WTF, um, yeah. <laughs> right there. With, who wrote that review for Talking Broadway? I forget. Um, but, it was, I think it was James Wilson, but it may have so, been Howard Miller. <laughs> I, those two. I, I'm telling you, I was like, where am I in the same play? I what know, just happened I here? I know. I know. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I know. was like, this, uh, it, it talk, talk about take me out. <laughs> this, this took me out of the production. Um, we should talk about, um, well, not talk about, but just mention that this was the play that Army Hammer was in and yeah. was replaced in yeah. uh, uh, mm -hmm. in the interim in between when Broadway opened and uh, closed and reopened. And it's funny because uh, when I'm heading to the theater... Uh, I always pull up my uh, press invite to see if there's anything interesting that I should I should note and things like this. And I pulled up my press invite from before the pandemic by accident. Uh, and I have to read you what the uh, the, uh, the the press invite can't because uh, I was canceled on the evening of of the of the closing. It says, as you may already have heard, the Broadway League released a statement today that the closing of Broadway theaters until the week of April 13th. Mm, right. I remember that. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Remember mm -hmm. that? It was going to yeah. be a couple of days closed. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And to, September to, 14th, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah little so, by little. Yeah. So uh, Army Hammer was in there. Uh, and now it's Noah Reed. And I, I thought Noah Reed was great. I thought that he mm -hmm. was really mm -hmm. very good. What a cast. Uh, mm -hmm. Blair Brown, uh, uh, I mean, Jesse Mueller, Sally Murphy, Austin Pendleton. Um, this was uh, not only just uh, – uh, it's, I, 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 I don't want this to sound pejorative, <laughs> but like some of these, some of these actors really just, as soon as you saw them, they, they printed immediately who that character was, but there was subtlety to all of them uh, and much, much more beyond what you're seeing there. I thought it was, it was very interesting. I'm still at a, at a tremendous loss for the last minute mm -hmm. uh, of the, of this play and, and why, and what was the, 
I, I mean, I understand what he was, tr- what what the point was, and everything. I just, I just thought it was just uh, bizarre. So, see the first eighty nine minutes and leave. <laughs> so, and uh, and I think that this will, that you really will enjoy it. So that's the minutes at Studio Fifty Four. It's playing through July tenth. All right, so that wraps it up for this week. Before we get on to musical moments and trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by go- going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today so peter what do we have in this week's uh trivia <laughs> well uh we did um, last week ask what character in a tony winning musical has a first name of leonora well the 1972-73 tony winning a little night music in a weekend in the country has Anne reed on an engraved invitation madam leonora armph oh no oh yes leonora is madam armfeld's <laughs> first name Tony Janicki is on vacation in Europe, so he sat this yes. one out. <laughs> that left the field open for Steve Bell, the first to get it, followed by Brigadude, Paul Witte, John Petrovic, Isaac Blevins, Mike Meany, J. Aubrey Jones, who you'd expect to get it. He did the show twice. <laughs> Robbie Roselle, Jeff Falenga, Robert Lobiondo, Warren Jones, Josh Israel, and Cheryl Hodges Selden. So this uh, was one that really got a lot of people uh, involved. But while we're on the subject of a little night music, Here's this week's question. In a manner of speaking, loosely speaking, very loosely speaking, in fact, what songs in this show could be said, in a manner of speaking, to have reprises? Hmm. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, we are honoring... The great Robert Morris, who mm. we just lost at age 90, uh, mm. beloved mostly as a stage actor. Mm-hmm. And also, I guess, his big uh, success in, other, in another field was Mad Men. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, you know, what a wonderful cap that was to his career, because, of course, his most famous role was J. Pierpont Finch and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying on Broadway and in the film of that. And in that he was playing a young uh, go-getter trying to make it in the corporate world. And then in uh, years later, decades later in Mad Men, he was playing a, well, actually I didn't get to see the show, but he was some kind of a CEO or a, or a senior partner or uh, like a, a real big wig, uh, sort of the equivalent almost to JB Bigley in mm-hmm. how to succeed. Um, and, yeah, Mr. Morse, he was he was really great. I, I got to interview him once and then I got the pleasure, had the pleasure of meeting him backstage after his performance in True, which was really one for the ages. I'm glad that that got into all the obits, how amazing he was as Truman Capote in True and what was mm, essentially a, a one man show. Um, our opener is Rosemary. Uh, right. from the film soundtrack of How to Succeed. And the interesting thing here is, uh, just give a listen, uh, there is an excerpt in the show and on the original Broadway cast album of the Grieg Piano Concerto. Mm-hmm. But for the film, it's rewritten a little bit. And I think that was because right around that time, they were, uh, were preparing to make the movie Song of Norway. And I, 
I, I'm, I've always guessed that they didn't have the rights to the Grieg music uh, oh. to use in a movie at that time. Oh. And that's why they rewrote it, because why else would they? Um, so you can listen to uh, this excerpt and then compare it to the one on the original Broadway cast recording and hear the difference. Uh, and our closer is uh, uh, one of my favorite songs from Sugar, the musical Sugar, and that is Penniless Bums, mm -hmm. uh, a duet right at the start of the show that uh, that Robert Morris did with Tony Roberts uh, before they get into their female garb um, to escape the uh, gangsters who are trying to kill them. Uh, he was a wonderful, charming performer. Our friend Ron Fassler uh, has written a, a beautiful tribute to him uh, mm -hmm. that you can see. I, 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 can you link to that, James? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he really he really did seem to be beloved. And it's a great loss. But I, I, I guess you would have to say a great life died at 90 uh, mm -hmm. with everyone loving him. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, sugar, some like it hot uh, connection here in the last uh, week or yes. so. We have the, yeah. uh, the announcement that we're going to see that uh, in the next year or so. Mm -hmm. So that's all exciting. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Two possessors of such rare musical gift. Why should two fine artists be beset by such ravaging beasts? And stay alive, struggling to survive in a world of famines and feasts. Hey, Jer, let's get out of the musicians' union and try and get a job. There are no jobs. See how two melody masters can suffer a string of disasters and finally become two penniless bums. Duckin the butcher and laundry Which one to pay is a quandary So we pay none like penniless bums Train for the philharmonic we offered Our souls ironically just to be spurned and chronically snubbed Rib cages like two xylophones so thin We're just a pile of bones begging for crumbs a grief that numbs Just like two pitiful penniless bombs See how two melody masters can suffer A string of disasters and finally Become two penniless bombs It seems like faster and faster We head toward a total catastrophe Just to Pathetic and penniless bums A world we're tired of grappling We feel like Charlie Chaplin Who gulped his Adam's apple And ate his shoe We hear somewhere in Siberia There is a free cafeteria So here we come Save us a crumb Here come two pitiful penniless bums
Union busted, not gosh darn Union busted. I swear it's human, it's practice, practice, ain't study, study, let's bump, where's it get you, buddy? We find our minds in a country laundry, we over-butcher, we over-laundry, which one we pay, well, it's hard to say, let's bump, so we pay nobody. Just a pile of bones, bacon for crawfish. 